Welcome to the Recipes for Residency podcast, where we invite medical doctors from all stages of their training and ask them questions regarding their path to residency and how they were able to successfully match into the specialty of their choosing, and more importantly, the advice they would give to any student trying to match into the same field. My name is Austin Mefford. I'm a third-year medical student at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas, and I will be your host. Today's guest is Dr. Courtney Townsend. Dr. Townsend is the Robertson Post Distinguished Chair in General Surgery and a professor in surgery here at UTMB. Dr. Townsend, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. I just wanted to start with you kind of giving the listeners a little background on who you are and and your path to medicine and, and residency. When I was five years old, I decided I wasn't going to be a cowboy or a fireman, so I'd be a surgeon. My father was a surgeon in a small town, and that that's what I that's how I did it. I never changed, never thought anything more about it than that. I'd have a teddy bear and he would give me some old instruments and I would operate on my teddy bear, sew them up, hide stuff in the bear that I didn't want my brothers to get a hold of. So I may not be really as helpful to everybody in terms of the epiphany or whatever, because I there wasn't any question about what I was gonna do. Sure. And so you went to medical school here at UTMB. I did. And then you went to residency here. I did. And then you did your fellowship in surgical oncology at UCLA. Correct. Okay. And how has residency changed over the years since since you a- applied and attended? I know it hasn't been that long, but... Um, well, they get paid a lot more and they don't work near as much. <laughs> You know, when we were running, they said the worst thing about being on call every other night is you miss half the action. Well, I mean, I'm sure <laughs> I, I, they did implement the 80-hour work week uh, limit. Um, I'm sure that seems like a little bit of a, a low ball. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. I mean, nobody wants their surgeon to stay up all night the night before they operate on him. I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine. And getting rid of a bunch of silly wasting time so that you can focus on learning and taking care of patients. That's what it's all about. Right. Well, so Dr. Townsend um, now is does a lot of administrative and, and teaching work here at UTMB. Um, and I just was wondering when you were on the rounds and you had medical students that were following you, um, what, what was some concepts that you were really looking for in medical students that may be applying to general, general surgery? Well, the thing you're looking for in applicants to the surgical program, and as you're looking at medical students, you want to look at know something about their character, their competence, and their commitment. Uh, medical students who prepared themselves for rounds, who showed up early and stayed up late, did extra reading, were interested and in, involved in learning about patient care, learning how to learn about patient care as opposed to disinterested observers who always stood at the back of the group and never offered anything. That's what you look for. Somebody who wants to do what they say they want to do. And that's interesting that you bring that up because I know being in the OR a couple of times as a medical student, it's a little intimidating um, trying to, you know, wiggle your way to the front of the, the case in front of the residents or obviously not in front of the attending, but kind of making yourself known because you kind of feel in the way a lot of times. And so, I mean, what advice would you give to someone who's a little bit apprehensive? Because they don't want to, you don't want to come off as crass and kind of a know-it-all medical student. Well, the most important thing before you go to the operating room is know what the case is going to do and read about the case. Know the anatomy. 
know the steps in the operation, know why the steps are what they are and what you're going to do, and the possible pitfalls about it. Study about the case before you go in. The, obviously, anatomy is the first. You got to know what it, how it's put together and how it's disrupted and how you need to put it back together. And you need to know the steps. Every operation has to have an organized plan and, and step one, you, you take as long to complete step one as it takes to complete step one. And then you go to step two, but Brownie in motion and flipping around here and there and not knowing what's going to happen next and lots of extraneous movement. That's just a waste of time and effort and prolongs the operation. So students should prepare themselves by studying about it, knowing why they're there and, and what they're going to do while they're there. And then tell them, I can't see good, or I want to make them push you out of the way rather than hanging at the back. They're not ever going to ask you to come up. So if you want to get involved, get involved. And when you're involved and in a meaningful way, and they recognize that you really are involved, that you know what's going on. You know, medical students are junior partners anyway. From day one of medical school, they are junior partners. And you get increasing responsibility with increasing ability. The more you know, the more you're allowed to do. So show them that you've studied about it. You want to know what's going on. And you know how to do this. And then if you want to participate in the cases, practice at home. Learn how to tie knots. Uh, do those kinds of things so that it's not just fumble fingers all day and you can't get anything done. Right. And I think I've kind of learned that as I've gone. The power of YouTube in today's world um, is very powerful. I learned literally learned to suture from watching YouTube videos of surgeons teaching you how to do it. Or I would YouTube a procedure before going in and watching the surgeon do that. So I'm kind of familiar with the with the process of it. And you can at least seem informed, like you said, like you've researched it, you've read about it. Instead of just asking miscellaneous questions to make it seem like you're interested, you actually have real questions about it and Correct. doctors would be more willing to, to answer. And you, you can watch it on YouTube and, and that's a great thing to, to watch and see how they do it time and again. But the first time you pick up a needle holder with a curved needle in it and you try to put it in straight rather than using the curve you only do that by doing it. Although you look at, oh, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. But you don't, they're not putting it in straight. Right. right? They're using the curve. So you have to combine both. 1910, Abraham Flexner evaluated 155 medical schools in Canada and the United States. He broke them down into three classes, A, B, and C. There were 22 in class A and I think 50 in class B and over 80 in class, whatever the math is, the vast majority in class C. And he classed them on the, the, on the entrance requirements for medical school. Was there college? Was there high school? Or was there not? 1910. And he wrote this long report, the Flexion Report, that sort of governed the development of medical education in the United States and Canada. And in it, he wrote, an education in medicine requires both learning and learning how. Students can't effectively know unless they know how. And so one of the things that irritates me to no end is that the educationists nowadays use the term learners. A seal can learn to balance a ball on their nose, <laughs> but they're not a student. We are students. We study in depth. We study for life. 
And we have to learn as we study, but you have to know how as well as learn how. And that's what medical education is about. We, our job is to help you know how to learn how. Right. No, and that's a, that's a very interesting point, and I guess I never really thought about that. I've growing up in the 21st century, you're very accustomed to hearing that word, learners, you know, and and you make a good point. You make a good point with that for sure. Um, but so I just kind of wanted to kind of move forward with the interview a little bit and ask you some questions about kind of when you applied to residency, what was the process like? I mean, there was no match. You'd look at places to ask for. for what was going on, talk to faculty, talk to uh, residents, talk to other medical students who were ahead of you, where they were going to go, why they were going to go there. Uh, and then you would interview, and then you would hope to get get an offer. I I didn't interview a lot of places. One, I, w- I wasn't going to the Northeast because it was too cold. I spent a combination of junior and senior electives in the summer of 1968 at the University of Colorado, working in the lab of Dr. Thomas Starzl, uh, transplantation immunology. And so I interviewed at the University of Colorado. I'd never been skinned, never have been skinned, would never go. Uh, and then I interviewed at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, UCLA, and here. I wasn't going where it was cold. Uh, the programs in California, the two programs in California were good programs. They were led by Dr. Dunphy and Dr. Longmire. And the program here was one that I knew. Uh, and so I chose to go here. And Dr. Townsend is from Northeast Texas, uh, uh, from Paris. So, I mean, at least that was the closest option of, of all of them. Did that have any sway? I don't think so. I may have been intimidated by the traffic in L.A., which is fascinating <laughs> because five years later I ended up there. Uh, but I, no, I, I, nobody said you had to stay home or anything else. It, it was just... It was easy. You knew who, who the people were and had established a relationship. I started working in the immunology lab here at the end of my sophomore year in medical school. Only I'd never decided, thought about doing anything other than just going to practice. And then during microbiology, I started got interested in immunology. And at the end of the sophomore year, most people at, uh, in our school at that time would go do externships, go get a job and a city county hospital somewhere to learn how to do IVs and nasogastric tubes and take history and physicals and see patients and, you know, play doctor. And so I wanted to go to a good place. So I went to see Dr. Blocker. Dr. Blocker was founder of plastic surgery here, was a chairman of the surgery and was the first president at UTMB. So I went in to ask him, I said, where'd be a good place for me to go uh, to do an externship? I'm getting ready to finish the sophomore year. Said, you don't want to do that. You're going to do that the rest of your life. Said, you need to go over there and work in this uh, immunology lab. They've just started set up. Uh, they're getting ready to do a kidney transplant program here. And that's what you need to do. You need to use your brain. Okay. So I went over and worked in the immunology lab that was supporting the development of the kidney transplant program. At the same time, then, I was able to participate in animal surgery and in kidney transplants. And, and that's how I got interested in academics. I'd never thought about that. So that's why I, I narrowed the places that I wanted to go uh, because they all had fine transplant programs and, 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 and it was the kind of place that you could do academic surgery. And so that, that's how I chose to do it. Right. And 
with regards to people applying to general surgery in today's climate, what are some some things that you would advise them as far as how important research is or how important mentorship is and that and how how would a medical student approach this? Oh, I think mentorship is very important. I think research is important only if you do meaningful research. I was fortunate and able to work with people and for a long enough period of time, starting at the end of my sophomore year and continuing through till I graduated. So I had several papers that were published before it was finished. But to go down a little bit in, in research, isn't it, isn't it advantageous at all? The, the important thing is get to know faculty. Go by and see them. Tell them, knock on the door. Emails and texts are easy ways to whatever. But if you really want something, knock on the door and see somebody and look them in the eye. Tell them you're there. I mean, that, that's, you know, being there is 85% of it. And showing up and standing outside the door before they get there, let them know that you wanted to get in to talk to them and, and to tell them what you want to know. And I was very fortunate in that I had a very easy relationship with many faculty because I was interested and I asked them and I stayed on them. And so, uh, but that's the way you do Just, just ask. I mean, as I said, you're our junior partners. We want you to be as good as you can be because you may be taking care of us one day. And see, but that's a, an intimidating task. And in today's, you know, climate, as far as applying to residency, you know, they you can look at the NRMP match data and it says you have to have or you don't have to have, but the average number of publications is 19 million and the average number of work experiences is 23 and you have to start an organization and volunteer across the world. And so it's it's hard to find those things. And I think a lot of students get caught up in that and trying to check those boxes that a lot of those meaningful connections that we kind of establish along the way kind of go over our heads almost. Yes, and it's unfortunate that that's the way it is. It's it's sold that way because, again, it's personal interaction, letting somebody know that you're willing to work harder than anybody else they ever saw. That's why I've always recommended for students to do away rotations at places they think they want to train. Two reasons. One, it gives them a good close-up look and lets them know, would you like to go here? Would you like to live here? Would you like to be around these people and have them have you say and have them say that we were colleagues for the rest of your life? And two, you let them know that you're the hardest working, most eager, brightest medical student they ever saw because you've got control of that. You can show up early. You can read books all night. You can do whatever it takes to, to let them know that you're what they need. That's that personal interaction. Do you have what it takes to get the job done, and are you willing to do it? And it's it's a little bit of a gamble, though, because if you make a mistake while you're at an away rotation, and a meaningful mistake, then it probably could be... Then don't make a mistake. Noted. And we just won't make a mistake. There you go. No, and it's true. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's a little bit of a gamble, but it's it's like a month-long interview. You go there, you perform, you do absolutely. what you signed up to do. And you've got control of it. Right, right. And I think as medical students, we, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as far as trying to impress the faculty and trying to make people at that institution like us. But at the same time, we need to like them. Correct, correct. They may be a bunch of creeps. You... You wouldn't want anybody to know you knew them. Right. No, no, no. That's why I say there's two reasons you do that. Right. 
No, and that and that's that's some life advice for sure. Um, and it's important that we kind of keep that in mind. But so specifically, when you are, let's say, I mean, you've probably hired one or two people in your day, residents, faculty, whatever. When you're looking at someone's application, personal statements, step one score, and let's speak specific to general surgery here. What are you looking at more intently? And, you know, I mean, in today's process, they value that they use the word holistic and it's very important. But I was just wondering if there's certain aspects of an application that you look at and and you you like to see certain things. And then maybe there are certain things that people think they need to have that they really don't. Track record. Track record in life. If you if you have done things in high school and college beyond just go to school, if you were in the band, if you played competitive sports, if you played contact sports, any of those kind of things, you know what it's like to not always win. But you got to get up and do it again. You can't throw up your hands and quit when things go wrong because in medicine, things will go wrong. And you have to minimize those, and, it, and when it happens, you can't you can't quit. So you look for people with a track record of accomplishment outside the classroom. Clearly, the classroom is important. People who who have good grades usually uh, figure out what it is to, t- to get the job done and and are willing to do that. But then you do other things as well, and so that's that's what you look for. Again, it's character, it's commitment, and it's competence. Right, and no, and, and you bring a good point and. I mean, you're one of the more seasoned faculty, so we've had some interviews on the show already that have differing opinions on certain issues. And I think that's what's great about this podcast is nothing that anyone says is technically gospel, although Dr. Townsend might be the closest thing to that. Um, But it's good to have a a diversity of opinions, a diversity of thoughts on these things. And depending on what specialty you want to go into, if you're applying to general surgery, then um, I think what Dr. Townsend has to say is probably a pretty uh, notable and, and trustworthy. So as far as resources are concerned with general surgery, what, what resources would you want medical students that are interested in general surgery? To Actually, know? it's not it's still limited to general surgery because okay. the American College of Surgeons represents all surgical specialties uh, and all and there are foreign members, as well, international fellows as well. So all specialties, and it provides information to, to medical students about all surgical specialties. So I would encourage any student who's interested in surgery of any stripe to visit the American College of Surgeons website, look up student medical student membership, and become a medical student member of the American College of Surgeons, regardless of your specialty. OB-GYN, ENT, plastic surgery, anything you want to do in surgery, they are represented in the American College of Surgeons. And there's a wealth of information available to medical student members about residencies, about educational opportunities, about personal development, residences, leaders, these kind of things. It's, it's a wonderful resource, and it's, it's unique as far as I'm concerned. Uh, in the world, and any student interested in any kind of surgery should avail themselves of that. I think it costs twenty dollars a year, or twenty dollars to join, and maybe same amount a year. And surely you can do that. I think I spend that much on Starbucks every week. Right, right. every day, probably. Anyway. 
Okay, cool. Well, yes, we'll definitely uh, keep those in the show notes um, for you guys to access in the future. So I just kind of wanted to kind of shoot some miscellaneous questions at you as we kind of wrap things up. And we talked about this a little bit before the the show started, but what do you think of the pass-fail step one? I think it's idiotic. Why? Medical students are the most highly competitive group of people in the world. You get into medical school because you make really good grades and everybody knows that. The best jobs go to the best, the people with the best grades, that is the best residencies go to the people with the, it's track record again of accomplishment and it's measured in numbers. Who lost the Super Bowl last year? But everybody can remember who won. It's about winning. It's about knowing that and getting recognition for your efforts. And so I think it's foolish. Might as well just, I mean, who cares? That you, that you passed step one because nobody knows where you passed it. You made it pass it by one number as opposed to knock the top off. Well, and that's interesting that you say that because a lot of residency programs, or at least I've heard this kind of through the grapevine, have already started to blind step one scores because people applying in our year may be also applying with other colleges, for example, Baylor College of Medicine, which they don't, their students don't take step one until their third year. So they will be applying to residency with us, but we'll have a pass fail designation for their step one. And I've heard that, and I would like to get your opinion on this, that now the notoriety of your medical school is what's going to carry. Oh, I think there's going to be a large part of it. I I don't think there's any question, because what you're trying to look at in a very short period of time, what objective data do you have that this person, and thank goodness, I hope most of them are going to go back to, although I was amazed at how well the Zoomies worked. When you're looking at somebody full on, you have a whole lot better idea about how to assess them, uh, regardless of what you see on paper and so forth. So I, I'm really, I hope we go back to live interviews that, if, if it's safe, uh, and that interviews will be very important. And the most important thing for the interviewee is be honest. Tell them what you want to do and why you want to do it and be, be confident in what you're, what you're doing. Don't sit there and fiddle with yourself and be nervous all the time and look around the room and everything because they're going to figure out you ain't got a clue about what's going on. And that's the important thing is, is be true to yourself. Uh, and, and it'll it'll be just fine. And don't exaggerate anything on your resume. I've yeah, heard absolutely. I've, I've heard that one echoed a couple of times because they will ask you about it, and then they will watch you flounder around. <laughs> and that's embarrassing for both parties, honestly. Um, so, what do you, about step two? So, a lot of people are assuming that step two is going to kind of move in and take the place of step one. I hope some kind of quantitative assessment, because as you know. At our medical school right now, we don't use grades. We used to use grades. You know there's still class ranks somewhere. They keep that. But H for honors, high pass for close to. Pass is a broad field now, going from 70 to 89. A C of P is what it is. (laughs) And so if you have all H's, that's pretty good. If you've got HP's and H's, that's pretty good. But as opposed to medical schools that still rank their students, this guy's number four in his class uh, of, you know, how many ever. And I don't know how many schools do that now or, or whatever. But so, yes, the reputation of the school is going to be important. All, another thing is that you want to find out is where people from your school have gone to train 
and contact them. What's it like where you are? Do you really like that place? Is it some place that somebody want to go? And there are places that they'll take somebody because, gee, we've had three people in this school and they've all knocked the top off of it. We're, we're going to give this one a chance because even if the other people aren't there. So there's a lot of that, that reputational uh, strength that I think is, is helpful as well. I, unfortunately, a lot of people have been kind of echoing that, that at some point, step two is also going to go to pass. Oh, I'm sure they'll do that. And, and then why even give them? Right. And then now if you show up, then you get a pass and yeah. you become whatever doctor you want to be. But it's unfortunate because a lot of people are saying that, you know, the people that go into these competitive specialties, like different surgical subspecialties and radio interventional radiology and oncology and things like that, are all going to be from the top 40 NIH funded medical schools because the only thing that these residency programs have to stratify the students that are applying is their medical school and where they're from. And the people from Harvard and Johns Hopkins and Northwestern and all these places are going to get probably preference over someone who maybe would have made a 270 on step one from a middle tier medical school. And I think that that's kind of disingenuous to medical students because honestly, I mean, not everybody picks their medical school based on how prestigious the name of their institution is. Of course not. And again, people make places, places don't make people. Right. I mean, we were done pretty well here on a sandbar two miles off the coast of North America <laughs> uh, in terms of, of achievement. And I think that what you've got to do is be confident in yourself, trust yourself, and do the best you can do. And let people know that you will do it by your record, and you'll be just fine. Okay. Don't get confused by all this Mostly, you don't get confused about stuff you can't do anything about. Just do what you can do about, and that is your achievements and your abilities to convince people that you've got what it takes. Right. Okay, and I have one last question for you, and this is typically one of the favorites as far as the questions that I like to ask and probably questions that the listeners like to hear about. But when you were on, on the wards and medical students are rotating with you, what is the most annoying thing? that a student does or the most off-putting thing that a student does? Not pay attention and not know what's going on when asked. That simple. You bet. I like it. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Townsend um, for being on the show today. There's a lot of knowledge and a lot, a lot that can be taken away from today's episode. If you're applying to general surgery, um, then I definitely would recommend listening to this podcast um, maybe once or twice to make sure that you kind of are absorbing everything from this, uh, this guy over here. Um, I'm going to link some resources that have been mentioned in the show for general surgery and residency applications, and we'll link them in the show notes so you can have access to them. Um, and if you have any questions um, for me or Dr. Townsend, I can also put our emails in the show notes sure. as well. And um, you can reach out to either of us uh, for more content. So thank you so much. And please make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for more content on the Recipes for Residency podcast. 